today on the Tearsheet Podcast. What Fireblocks provide is effectively some form of institutional, we call it direct custody, but it is an institutional form of a secure, non-custodial model for, for most of the cases. Um, and the advantage over there is that you definitely eliminate counterparty risk uh, from relying on anyone else. You, you, you're removing the counterparty risk, you're removing the operational risk, and um, and then that very elementary st- structure can be evolved using smart contracts and using MPC technology that we deployed to kind of extend the model to create trustless structures between you and the people that you interact and you trade with. Welcome to the Tearsheet Podcast. I'm your host, Tearsheet's Editor-in-Chief, Zach Miller. Today's guest is Michael Shaulov, co-founder and CEO of Fireblocks. Michael strikes me as one of the smartest guys in the room. Fireblocks, for its part, is a platform to create blockchain-based products and to manage day-to-day digital asset operations. Banks like BNY Mellon and BNP Paribas are using the firm's wallet technology for digital asset custody. For an industry in flux, Michael's positioning Fireblocks as an important layer in the digital asset technology stack. Our discussion happened before the failure of SVB and the closure of Signature Bank. Michael's pragmatic approach is refreshing, and speaking to him, you get the feeling that he's building something for the long run. Michael Shalov is my guest today on the Tearsheet Podcast. So my name is uh, Michael Shalov. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Fireblocks. Um, you know, what we do in Fireblocks, we provide infrastructure for uh, financial institutions and uh, Web3 companies and general, general uh, enterprises to work with digital assets, uh, cryptocurrencies, and uh, the rails. Uh, my background is in uh, actually uh, over two decades in cybersecurity before starting Fireblocks. Uh, previously worked for the Israeli Cyber Command as part of the military service, and then um, uh, sold my previous company to Checkpoint. So you know, been in the cybersecurity space for about two decades before, uh, until starting Fireblocks. It is much more of a kind of intersection of cyber and fintech. Great. And it's, it's great to see you again. I know we started this conversation in, in Vegas last year. Um, I, before we jump in, I'm curious also, is, do you see a lot of other people that have made the jump from cyber to crypto? It's based on similar principles, right? Yeah, uh, I do see a few. It's mostly sitting in that infrastructure level of uh, wallet, mm-hmm. uh, where there are companies that uh, the founders and the founding team similar to ours, uh, but not as many as you would expect, to be honest. I think that there is still some kind of conservative approach among the people that uh, come from cyber that uh, they uh, still view this activity as somewhat more synonymous with the bad actors that were dominating uh, this uh, maybe a decade ago, right, for all the ransomware and so on. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, and to be fair, to actually make the jump you need to learn a lot about finance and a lot about fintech uh, to be effective and to really build the right uh, type of company in this market. Most people just want to stay in what they know. So you you did that personally. How did you do that? Like, what, what was what does that transition look like for you? So initially, we thought to be to be fair. Initially, we just uh, ran, ran into this problem when I was a checkpoint. We investigated a breach that happened in South Korea. So uh, back in two thousand. Uh, 16, 17, the North Korean uh, hacking team, they hacked mm-hmm. four exchanges in South Korea and they stole $200 million worth of Bitcoin. Bitcoin by that, basically then was uh, worth uh, 
$1,000. So you can multiply it by 23, I think, at the moment. And um, uh, and that's my, actually like, you know, the same team that the year before they hacked the SWIFT system. So they sort of like well known for mm -hmm. compromising financial infrastructure uh, to bypass sanctions on North Korea. Um, and that triggered my interest in that domain. Um, honestly, I was not kind of a Bitcoin maximalist. Unfortunately, I didn't invest in Bitcoin in uh, 2000, in 2011 or anything like that. And um, that payments banking when, guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, what, what basically happened at that point in time, after we did uh, our part of that investigation, I kind of started going down the rabbit hole and learning about the technology. And what I realized is that it's a transformational technology for finance on one hand. And the second uh, thing that I learned is that um, there wasn't infrastructure to work in a transactional way uh, with uh, with cryptos and digital assets, which was clearly underpinning all the narrative of uh, what you're supposed to do with the technology, right? Uh, it wasn't just like a, a seeing Bitcoin as an investment vehicle. It was really what assets you can tokenize, how you can transform money, how you can make money and, and assets more compatible with how the internet works. And mm -hmm. therefore you needed a secure transactional infrastructure. So this is what we start to build. And then there was like a very steep learning curve of basically uh, learning, like reading a lot of books about finance and financial infrastructure and about how Visa works and about how clearing houses work and about how banks work. And luckily I moved to New York. So I had all the- The epicenter. Know, yeah, the, the, the best financial experts uh, that can teach you how all the different financial instruments work and, you know, what is counterparty risk and things that we're going to discuss about today. And you kind of able to, I think like, you know, the most interesting thing, thing for me is basically taking the principles and the deep understanding of the underlying technology, which is effectively built on cryptography. That is a, a school in cyber, a school of, that is part of cybersecurity and figuring out how do you use this machinery and how do you use that infrastructure to solve a, Kind of centuries old um, financial problems, right? I mean, counterparty risk, uh, you know, uh, movement of assets, uh, clearing. Um, those are things that that, they, that date, you know, thousands of years. Ledgers, uh, back. yeah, ledgers, yeah, yeah, ledgers, yeah. All, all this technology kind of goes back to the to Babylon, right? Right, and. Uh, and the technology like that, the, the 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 way to basically represent financial assets, and the and that's I think the most exciting thing uh, for me of uh, applying the know how um, that me and my team you know spend uh, two decades in of solving problems that are from a very different domain, right? It's a bit like how. People use AI to uh, identify cancer, and so mm -hmm. you know it, it's it's kind of diffusion between those two disciplines. So, so Michael, you mentioned this counterparty risk, and I think you know everything we see in the news, whether it's FTX or you know stable coins not being as stable as as people thought, like it really kind of, and especially for this vision of like decentralized finance, like. But I think a lot of the issues that we've seen is that things aren't decentralized, and it really highlights what the how how pernicious counterparty risk could be um i'd love to hear like sort of your view on that and what's sort of shaping up um the the companies you're having conversations with the investors you're having conversations with like what's happening there yeah so i actually will divide the world into two uh, in, in into two different uh, kind of 
domains. The first domain is actually the, the pure decentralized finance that uh, honestly, with the exception of uh, Terra Luna, most of that space was functioning very, very well during mm -hmm. the stress scenarios that we've seen over, over the last couple of months. Um, and the reason for that is that, to be honest, decentralized finance does work. It took it a while to, like the last couple of years, were a good um, kind of testing ground. And some of the blue chip protocols like Aave, Uniswap, Compound were um, were battle tested and they uh, kind of survived the different collapses and the stress situations that uh, the market had, had thrown at them in the last 12 months. The part that didn't function that well, non unsurprisingly, is basically kind of the centralized finance that underpinned some of the speculative environment um, right. around crypto. Um, if we take a, a small step back, it's important to understand that outside of Bitcoin, there is an asset that you sort of, we can argue what it means and how do you invest in it? And, you know, it's much more of a, some kind of re reserve instrument. All the other protocols, uh, public chain protocols, whether it's Ethereum or Solana or Avalanche or Polygon and some of those things that people are sort of familiar with, the fact that they have a token and the fact that that token is uh, valued or has some kind of dollar price attached to it is actually a bet on the fact that the underlying blockchain is going to be the dominant rail right. to represent assets and to run financial infrastructure. So... I like the way the you question, described that. Yeah. Yeah. The question, like, you know, is Polygon worth something or Ethereum worth something is basically a question. Do we are we going to have US dollar or, or and tokenized securities and uh carbon credits and uh IP in the form of NFTs mm -hmm. being represent represented on, on that blockchain? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And would repo markets, lending markets, exchanges, decentralized exchanges will actually run and be activated on that blockchain. And that promise is actually working quite well, right? This this was not affected with a small caveat. The Terra Luna was an interesting experiment of how if you can create a stable coin that doesn't have a real dollar backing behind it. And it was an experiment that unfortunately failed, but it was one experiment among others that some of the other experiments, for example, MakerDAO, okay, that is actually quite successful, okay, which was not undermined. And then... Um, and the main difference over there, to be, to be quite, uh, quite frank, is the kind of the algorithmic structure that was different between the two. So I'll put it aside for a second. The main issue that we actually seen with FTX and Celsius and Three Arrows, those issues, uh, they are, generally speaking, just very traditional financial counterparty risk problems. Right. Governance. That, yeah, yeah. That. Those players uh, were um, operating with traditional models, right? Three Arrows was a hedge fund, and mm -hmm. uh, and um, and Celsius is just basically a, um, a lender, lender. A peer to peer, or like an aggregated lender. And FTX was a combination of uh, an exchange and, unfortunately, a market maker that was attached to that exchange. And mm -hmm. and the main issue over there, as you said, was basically some form of go governance, right? To be honest, probably much more of um, two issues that, that, that were, were, were main gaps, right? The first one is 
inadequate regulatory frameworks that was enforced on those players. Right. And the second issue is the fact that people were really carried away and they didn't activate the minimal um, counterparty risk assessment that that you would apply on uh, on those uh, players. And and honestly, what we've seen over there is this, it's kind of almost the same scenario as we've seen in traditional markets. So, right. so, so probably three arrows, the most comparable example is uh, LTC, like long-term capital uh, management from, from, from the 90s. Uh, it's almost like one to one, and and Celsius huge leverage to bets. Certain extent. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit like Lehman, right? That basically at some point they basically completely lost track with a bit of fraud uh, of uh, what was going on, uh, on uh, in terms of their different positions, and eventually they reached a point where they they just didn't have uh, those positions covered against what was going on in the market. And FTX is basically misappropriation of client funds, you know, at that most. And in uh, the cookie jar, yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. That's like Bernie Madoff, okay. Yeah. In the in the, in the most, uh, uh, I guess you know, in the most uh, abstract way of 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 how you can look at those things. Um, now, what we argue enough folks is that interesting, and we argue that actually for the last two and two and a half years um for our clients so you know we currently servicing 1500 clients right which is basically all the big players financial institutions fintech companies hedge funds uh, web3 companies and so on in this space and for the last two and a half years we were arguing that we want to introduce a capabilities, technical capabilities that they will be able to obtain counterparty risk mitigation against some of their centralized uh, players and counterparties um, in the form of, uh, I will throw a few buzzwords, but for example, in the form of uh, on-chain escrow capabilities, right? So you can, using blockchain, you can actually programmatically create an escrow where which is like visible for both parts for for both of the parties um that reduces counterparty risk that you don't need to prefund right which is what happened with ftx as an example um we introduced the technology that uh, allowed you to actually have a remote view on the positions of your counterparties which could have saved some of the lenders to uh to three arrows right um for a long period of time the 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 space was not that interested in adopting that technology although you would argue that this is kind of the part of the narrative of the space they preferred to operate using the existing methodologies that uh, you would see in the traditional financial space um, interestingly enough, now all of this has been washed out and there is a huge demand for the things that we were proposing and contemplating for a few years already. So on that front, it's a bit encouraging. So so it's really a technological solution um, around mitigating custodial risk. Yes. I mean, the whole idea about crypto, right, when you think about the narrative of uh, 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 that was created the inception of of Bitcoin 
was this theme around unbank yourself. That was kind of the, the first narrative. And I remember that. Yeah. And, and there is another narrative over there, which is basically not your keys, not your crypto, right? Right. Um both of them, both of them sort of lead you to this to to this self-custody model. Not not that I'm arguing that the self-custody model, what Fireblocks provide is effectively some form of institutional, we call it direct custody, but it is an institutional form of a secure non-custodial model for, for most of the cases. Um, and the advantage over there is that you definitely eliminate counterparty risk uh, from relying on anyone else. You, you, you're removing the counterparty risk, you're removing the operational risk, and, um, and then that very elementary st structure can be evolved using smart contracts and using MPC technology that we deployed to kind of extend the model to create trustless structures between you and the people that you interact and you trade with right and and that can be in the most institutional form of you know how a lender uh will get visibility into a borrower or how um a clear a decentralized clearing uh can can work between multiple counterparties and it can actually be applied to the most i guess consumerish interactions that people have on the internet so the best example i always give people imagine you have a ticket for a concert concert right and you don't want to go to that concert and honestly you don't want to pay the ridiculous fee that someone like ticketmaster or uh or starhub will will charge you on canceling the ticket or transferring to someone else right right now to sell someone that ticket uh, over facebook or instagram or you know some random messaging platform what's up on the internet to someone that you don't know carries counterparty risk right like who who goes first do you do you send the you go, no, you go. yeah yeah you, you send them the ticket and they send you the venmo or you know they send you the venmo and you send them the ticket and how do they know even that the ticket is a uh, is authentic right and the interesting thing about about crypto is that interaction can actually occur in a completely trusted way using atomic swap using an nft and vis-a-vis -vis a stable coin and you can create something that would cost like a friction fraction of, of, of a dollar uh and the rail is just like a regular internet rail that is agnostic to what application you you want to do without any intermediary so i think that you know when you when you give this example to people they kind of intuitively understand why mm -hmm. there is a breakthrough in the most by the way in the most simplistic interaction that exists between two people right of like we want to trade with each other and how do we guarantee that none of us is going to defraud the other person without having a centralized party that we both trust right and you can expand from that and it actually changes the world in terms of uh, how commerce can be done and how financial transactions can be done, and both on the individual level and the institutional level. And I think it's like super powerful uh, as more and more of our life becomes virtual and being uh, conducted over the, you know, internet rails. I get that. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk more about um, how institutions view um, traditional financial institutions view crypto at the, or digital assets at this point. I know like in our coverage last year, maybe the first half of the year, 
we had a lot of traditional institutions coming on this podcast and talking about their work and that that nobody's talking about crypto now, at least to us. I'm kind of curious, given where you sit, Michael, like what you how are you seeing the, the banks and traditional FIs, um, I guess, evolve in, in their relationship with digital assets? Yeah, so. I think that, that activity is still going. It's probably not as trendy to talk about it as it was a, a year ago. Just, just, just given the the fact that they the, the, those players are somewhat careful about their reputation, but definitely under the hood, their, the activity is going. It's somewhat an, a, intensifying, depending on the jurisdiction. I would say that in the U.S., with the exception of Bank of New York Mellon, that uh, is partnering with us and we powering their infrastructure. Uh, unfortunately, most of the other players are currently a bit on hold because of uh, the regulatory environment, specifically in the United States. Um, you're kind of seeing the SEC and the different regulators really trying to prevent the uh, banks and other players from stepping into working with uh, crypto broadly, you know, without any good, uh, to be honest, like, you know, without any good explanation of uh, right. not, why certain activities not only are they slowing it down they're jostling between each other the regulatory agencies who's who's going to be in charge too right yeah yeah, yeah. so 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 yeah so 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 the regulatory environment in the u.s as it relates to institutional adoption and also like you know to consumer adoption right now is a mess and uh, it's much more political than i think uh, anything else and honestly all 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 uh all fingers point back to what happened with FTX and some SBF and, you know, the political donations and so on. Um, but stepping stepping outside the United States, we actually see a huge momentum both in Europe and APAC and LATAM, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it really depends. I mean, what you, what we actually see is that in, in, in jurisdictions where there is either regulatory clarity or um, at least like, you know, some core reasonable cooperation and alignment uh, between between the regulator and the private sector, things are going really well, right? So we're seeing quite a lot of activity around issuance of stable coins. Uh, we're seeing that in Australia, we're seeing it in Singapore, Japan is probably going to be next. There are also legislation coming out of Europe in terms of Mika, and banks are involved there. Um, in Europe- Are you talking about Michael's stable coins like, at the central yeah. bank level? Okay. No, so so yeah, so maybe just to clarify over there, we both seeing central banks. Central banks are somewhat slower. We are involved in a less a handful of pilots right now in terms of uh, what is called central bank digital currencies. But this is like really government level. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I'm referring to is basically commercial money, right? So okay. it's a fully backed issued stablecoin, which uh, can take uh, one of two forms. It can be fully backed by cash or uh, or or or, or uh, cash equivalents essentially you know treasury basically government treasuries right um paper which is similar to the structures that uh, USDC and uh, Paxos have right so that's one formation what is much more appealing for the banks at the moment is like it's what we call tokenized deposits so Effectively, what they take is uh, is a cash deposit. They tokenize it. It's still kept under kind of the, the fractional uh, reserve uh, requirements uh, for the bank. And um, the advantage over there for the banks is that it doesn't it it, it doesn't uh, reduce the the leverage in the system. Okay, this is why the central banks uh, like that model slightly more 
from a scale standpoint uh, compared to the fully backed. Um, so that's kind of objective number one. We did, uh, we have now a few banks, a few of our clients like uh, ANZ Bank uh, and, and actually like, you know, two other banks in Australia that made it already public. Um, so that's one example. Um, we have non-banks like uh, GMO, which is a huge Japanese brokerage. They, they're issuing uh, Japanese yen. And it's a very interesting uh, example because on the back of uh, those structures and just generally like things like USDC and so on, we've been working with the top payment service providers, um, uh, WorldPay, Checkout, uh, PayU and so on, that they are using the the stable coins for uh for uh cross-border transactions so that's uh another example um and then uh and then there is a different activity which is much more in the tokenized security space so banks that are issuing uh, uh bonds we've done for example with abn armor recently that they use their infrastructure we're doing a really really interesting project with the Tel Aviv Stock Exchange that they are tokenizing uh, uh, Israeli government bonds, wow. uh, uh, which is pretty amazing. And, and they are doing it. It's it's really interesting because they're also tokenizing uh, shekels and um, they're really actually creating a whole new infrastructure for that. And we're seeing that being also quite uh, uh, advancing globally. I know we just have a couple minutes left, but I, I guess I want to ask you the impact that that's having as as the U.S. sort of hunkers down trying to figure out, you know, and it's, there's this flurry of activity globally. What do you what do you what impact do you think that has? I guess on U.S. competitiveness. Well, I mean, uh, the main question is how long that friction will last, mm -hmm. but it may definitely hurt the U.S. in terms of the competitiveness in the global financial markets. Uh, U.S. traditionally has been the innovator in financial technology, right? It's the biggest financial market, uh, the most sophisticated financial market, and so on. Um, unfortunately, I think that everything is coming at the moment from the SEC, uh, the OCC, the Federal Reserve, and so on, is preventing the adoption, and the both the incumbents, the incumbent players are not piling into this technology, and and they make it also much harder for fintechs to thrive in the United States, right? And what's happening is that everywhere abroad, people are moving. And honestly, this technology moves really, really quickly. So at some point it will start, it's going to be difficult to catch up. And that's, I think the main concern. Michael, it's been great speaking to you. Thanks for joining us on the Tearsheet podcast today. Zach, thanks so much for having me.